Let's turn to the 137th Psalm. Let these words come to us as well as those that have been breathed in and breathed out by the Lord our God. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung out our lyres, for there our captives required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again. Ask for God's blessing on it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Scripture that you have provided for us. We read here about those who uh, (coughs) miss being in Jerusalem, those who have been judged for their sin, um, and their captors who took pleasure in hearing the songs of the Lord, but only for entertainment only and also uh, the judgment that they asked for judgment on Edom, who gloated uh, on Israel's Judah's destruction. You'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this this scripture to us. ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Thank you, brother. Three points from our text before us tonight. First of all, this is a psalm about weeping. Secondly, it is a psalm about remembering. And thirdly, it is a psalm about justice. Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is a time for mourning, there is a time for weeping, and there is a time for dance, there is a time for joy, there is a time for rejoicing. And there are those times, are there not? As we think about... uh, You know, Dick and Rachel and the loss and the news, first of all, of John's cancer and then the loss of John on early Saturday morning. There is certainly not one of us who would sit back and say there is not a time for weeping. Certainly the tears come and they flow. Certainly many of you as well have experienced times of weeping. Now we must say that there are perhaps times when weeping seems to be out of place, it seems to be a little bit excessive or a little uh, overcoming. There used to be a pastor, uh, his name, his nickname was called Weeping Willie. His name was uh, William Maslink, I hope none of you are related to him and I certainly don't mean this to disparage him in any way, but uh, he was known to close every service 
with crying, and that every sermon ended with tears streaming down his face and wiping his face with a, with a handkerchief. Perhaps that might have grown old and tiresome, and yet I would have to believe it probably arrived out of a sincere faith and love for the Lord and a desire for God's people to know the Lord better. And yet, there are those times, are there not, when weeping is certainly very appropriate. We're certainly, even we are told, weeping is is needed and necessary. It's healthy for us to weep at times. I can recall that there was one individual a number of years ago who, who said to me they never saw their father cry. And I, I thought to myself, to a certain extent, how sad that was. That almost is something that makes one weep in and of itself, that one would think one has to remain so strong, so stoic in life, that even when weeping would be an appropriate emotion to display, that it could not be done. Of course, we don't know everything that happens in an individual's life to harden that life to that extent. But certainly one of the reasons that that there ought to be weeping, and weeping is certainly that which is uh, not only, I, I would say in a sense, desirable, but perhaps in a sense as well commanded, is when we think spiritually. Certainly it is appropriate for us to weep and mourn over our sins. Certainly it is appropriate for us to, to grieve the loss of a loved one. A believer in Christ, even Paul reminds us of that in the Word, that we are to grieve, but not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Certainly we are reminded of our Lord and Savior at the grave of Lazarus, weeping. Or we hear Christ saying on that road to the cross, weep not for me, but for Jerusalem. And that is what we have before us today. A passage about weeping. Weeping about spiritual matters of life. First of all, we we need to understand that Psalm 137 is written from a perspective. We are not given the author of this, nor are we given a little title that is included like we did with Psalm 30 when I read that as our call to worship. It's a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. We don't know who the composer of this particular psalm is or at the particular time. But we do know the perspective. And the perspective is that this is written from the Jewish people who are in exile. In particular, we would say it is those people from the nation of Judah who have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And as we go back and read that account, what Nebuchadnezzar did when he conquered Judah is he took away the best and the brightest of the land. He took away the sons of the nobility. He took away the royalty. He took away the priest. He took away the temple servants. And he took away the Levites. And it would appear, as we read this psalm, that he probably took away the temple musicians as well. And it is written then, it comes to us from the perspective of those who are in exile. They are in Babylon. They have been taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. 
The nation has been basically destroyed. The wall of Jerusalem has been broken down. The temple has been burned and desecrated. The place is a mess. And they're off in a far off land of Babylon. And although filled with many luxuries, although filled with awe in terms of inspiring, of looking at uh, those hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built, of looking at you know, an infrastructure of roads, of water and sewer, of things that, that they never had back there in Jerusalem. It is still written from the perspective of being an exile, of someone who is not at home, someone who has been forcibly removed from the place that they loved, the place that was home. That's the perspective. Secondly, the other thing to note is that they're not just there, they're also being tormented. Our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth. This isn't just the Babylonians saying, hey, you guys were pretty good musicians. We'd like to hear some of the music you you composed back there at the temple. This is a dig. This is a dig because, you see, the Babylonians understand something that these people are just beginning to get. They're in exile as a punishment from God. They are there because of their sins. The psalm doesn't include the the lines about it, but but William Bradbury in the the psalm that we sang included it, of understanding that they're there because they're a sinful people. They followed other gods. They followed pagan deities. They followed the gods of the Babylonians. They followed the society. They, They wanted to be like the other nations. And so they brought in those gods. To worship. God has now come and judged them and has torn them away from their land, has torn apart their precious Jerusalem. And so when the, the words come, hey, we want you to be joyful. Here they are weeping. We're weeping. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. They're not just crying. There aren't just tears. There's weeping. There's gut-wrenching, soul-wrenching, introspection into their lives of understanding that their situation is caused by their own sin. And there is nothing they can do about it. It is that realization that we come to in our own spiritual walk and journey that we can't save ourselves. Nothing can be done. And they're weeping. And yet the tormentors are saying, no, get rid of that weeping. Stop that weeping. Put on a joyful face. Put on a happy face. Laugh. And sing us. A song of your beloved Zion. Sing us those songs that speak about the beauty of Zion. And the tormentors are thinking all along, yeah, (laughs) you're beautiful Zion, what a mess. I've pushed over that. 
your beautiful Zion. Yeah, yeah, I hauled away your Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, your beautiful Zion. Yeah, I was the guy who, who put the torch to those beautiful cedars. Sing us a song about your beloved Zion. It's a psalm about weeping. Weeping in the midst of a spiritual introspection of life. A weeping while Satan, the tormentor, makes sport, makes laughter, makes jest of their love and care. Makes a mockery of their confession of sin and of their desire to be God's people. But, these are not people in despair. These are still people who are faithful. Notice the psalm. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. What does that mean? Well, of course it means they have their their instrument and there's these willow trees with low-hanging branches and it's there that they hung their their harps. Something else is going on, isn't there? Just think of how we use that to to hang something up. Suppose, as, as Sandy mentioned a minute ago, maybe you were working out in your garden yesterday. Maybe after the rain you got a little bit of Weeds coming up, so you, you, you went in your barn or your garage and you took the, the hoe or some sort of rake down and, and you went out to the garden and, and you, you hoed. You, you worked the ground and you got rid of weeds and so on. And then what did you do with the hoe or the rake? You hung it back up. Why? Say, because I'm going to use it again. Oh. You didn't throw it away. No. You didn't destroy it. You didn't go, well, ho, done with that hoe, done with that rake, break it over my knee, put it in the garbage can, throw it out tomorrow. Let them come and potluck pick up, pick it up, take it away. No, you hang it up. Why? Because you're going to use it again. You plan on it being used again. I suppose in a certain way we kind of do that with our cell phones as well. You know, we, we have these cell phones, they work on batteries and so on, and, and we, you know, when we're done with a call, we hang up, we push that little button, it decreases the amount of power. Why? Because we want, might want to use it again. It's not like we get one call, talk for two, three seconds, send one text, and then go, oh, done with phone, throw it away. Cell phone company would be pleased if we did that. But, but you see, we, we plan on using it again. See, that's where the faith comes in. They hung up their lyres. They hung up the harps. They didn't bend them. They didn't go, oh, never going to sing a song of Zion again. That's not what they said. They did not despair. They did not give up. They have not lost hope. We're not going to get rid of these instruments. We're just, we just can't use them now. Now is not the time. We'll hang them on the willows. Someday, you see, we will take those harps down from the willows. Someday we will sing the songs of Zion again. But not today. Today we hang them upon the willows. 
See, these are those who know the truth of God's word. They have heard the prophecy of God's word. They have understood they are there because of their sin. But they also know that Isaiah and Jeremiah have prophesied that in 70 years they shall return. We'll make use of those willows once again. This is a song about weeping. See, I particularly read Psalm 30 as our call to worship because it reminds us in those last words of, of that fifth verse, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. See, that's what's going on with the hanging the willow, the harps upon the willows. Yes, now is the time for weeping, but there shall be a day again when joy shall return and we will take our harps and we will make use of them again. Someday, but not now, I will sing the songs of Zion with joy. It's written from a certain perspective. It's written by those who are being tormented. But those who write, those who are giving us the psalm, are those who are remaining faithful. Secondly, it's a psalm about remembering. It's a psalm about remembering Jerusalem. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. See, that's why I said this psalm is probably written and comes to us from those who were the temple musicians, those who not only had the harps, the lyres, the instruments for singing the psalms, but also those who had the voices to sing as well. These were those that that its job, their job was, their responsibility was to raise the songs of praise to the Lord as people would come to Jerusalem to worship. They're remembering Jerusalem. They're remembering Zion, the city of God. But they're not remembering Jerusalem because of its beauty. That they had all around them with Babylon. From what we read, the description of Babylon during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, it was an amazing place, filled with all sorts of beauty and wonder. But you see, it's not the, it's not the, the outward beauty that they're looking at and thinking about. They're thinking about Jerusalem not in terms of its beauty. The wall of Jerusalem was... was Not a beautiful thing. And actually the temple of Jerusalem actually was kind of small. It wasn't a huge edifice. Why are they talking so much about Jerusalem? Because they're remembering the inner beauty. Because Jerusalem is where God dwelt. Jerusalem was where God dwelt between the cherubim. See, the beauty of Jerusalem is the presence of God. It looks like an old, dirty, dusty Middle East city. There was nothing attractive in terms of the outward beauty of Jerusalem. It's the beauty that emerges in the heart. Some of you understand that. 
Some of you understand that because you got an old pair of shoes. They're nothing to look at. They're ugly. They probably stink. Some of you have probably been told by your wife multiple times, throw them things away. You can't part with them. But they're just ugly. Yeah, but they fit so beautiful. They're perfect. I like them. The beauty here is not about its appearance, but about the quality. How can we sing songs of joy when that which is beautiful is no longer inhabited by God? God has left. God's no longer there. See, the joy of the song was in the presence of God. But God's presence is no longer there. So there can be no joy in the song. You see, there, there's something here for, for you and I to, to think about this. You know, we, we have to make all of these, re, remember what Scripture does here. Jerusalem is Zion. Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem is Zion. Jerusalem is the church. Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. See, it, what, what, what we're being told here is that these people prize the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. Not its outward appearance, but that inward relationship that is present amongst God's people, not only with one another, but most importantly, with God Himself. That's why you see that the beauty of a sunset over Lake Michigan on a Sunday evening is nothing compared to the beauty of the presence of God amongst His people on a Sunday evening. See, and the faithful understand that. Here they are in a foreign land. How can we sing the songs of Zion? Augustine wrote a pretty famous book entitled The City of God in which he he uses this this picture and this contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon that is going on between the church and the world. I'll admit it, folks. The world has a lot more stuff to entertain us, to tickle our fancies, to make us laugh, The world can offer us all sorts of outward things. But it cannot give us inner joy. And what Augustine is is writing about is there is that constant tension in the world for the believer between the city of God and the city of man. Between that lure of Laban and seeking to be part of the promised seed. These people of Psalm 137, 
These are the people who are representing how our hearts should be. The love we should have. The church. Christ's bride. Christ's presence amongst us. It's a song about remembering. But it's not just about remembering Jerusalem. It's also about remembering the Edomites. Verse 7. It's remembering the conspirators. You see, that's how you have to understand Edom. Edom here were conspirators in the downfall of Jerusalem. As Babylon invades, Edom is giving cover. It is Edom, those who had been spared by God, those who are the distant cousins of these people of Judah, who are on the hills watching, not giving help, not giving aid, not giving assistance, but applauding, (laughs) cheering the Babylonians on. They're standing on the hills, as it were, saying, burn it, burn it, tear it to the ground, kill them, kill them all, dash them to pieces, every single one of them. Remember, oh God, the Edomites. Remember those conspirators, oh God. Remember their desire for our destruction of Jerusalem. Don't forget it, Lord. Not from the sense that God could ever forget, but from the sense of, Lord, always hold them accountable. Always hold those people accountable for their their disdain of your presence amongst us as your people. But then we come as well to that this is a song about justice. See, we could stop there and I think most people would be fairly comfortable at that stage, right? Okay, verses 1 through 7, given the explanation, we're going, okay, Yeah. It's verses 8 and 9 that kind of make us, what are we supposed to do with these? Let me read them again. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And we go, ooh. That sounds a bit over the top. These are the kind of sounds that a lot of people backpedal away from and they go, well, you know, You know, in the New Testament, Jesus came and told us that, you know, we should love our enemies. So, you know, these kind of psalms we we shouldn't be reading anymore. We shouldn't be singing. We, We certainly shouldn't be saying, you know, this is the truth and this is what we ought to practice and this is what we ought to follow. I mean, people would would literally roll over in their graves to hear that preached from some of their pulpits of which they were church members. They, 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 the evangelical church runs away from this. They hide from it. And yet this is God's breathed out word. This is God's inspired word. 
Now, I think it helps if we look at verses 8 and 9, first of all, under that theme, the theme of justice. That's what's going on. 8 and 9 is about justice. It's not about personal revenge. This isn't about these people as individuals seeking to get back individually at the Babylonians. That is what Scripture condemns. That is what Scripture says is wrong. What Scripture says is wrong is when you have a group of people protesting that you do not agree with, and you're mad that they're protesting your protest, you just take your vehicle and you just plow through them to get revenge upon them. That God condemns. That God does not accept. That God never justifies. The same could be said for those who who would explode an abortion house and kill those who work in it. That's a personal vengeance. That's personal revenge. God says, no, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I know how to strike the lightning. I know how to direct the wind. I know how to hurl the fireball. You don't need to. This is not a psalm about personal revenge. So when, when people, if you ever have anybody approach you, and you know, they, usually it's from you know, those people who are skeptics. They know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. And so they toss out these passages. They toss out these verses. What kind of God do you have? A God that dashes children to pieces against the rocks. Well, one, you step back and say, this is not about personal vengeance. This is not about revenge. But it is about righteous judgment. Let me take you to a couple of passages. Let's go to Isaiah first. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 18. Isaiah 59, verse 18 and understand that the words that Isaiah are giving here, is giving here, these words are written before Psalm 137 then. They're, they're written before the perspective of the fall of Jerusalem. So you got Isaiah 59, and we're going to go to verse 18. According to their deed, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the close coastlands he will render repayment. So Isaiah is saying, listen, God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath to his adversaries. Yes, God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace in Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, there is God's wrath. Scripture says it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Now, with that verse in mind, understanding that God is a God of justice, go back to Isaiah chapter 13. 
And notice that in chapter 13, this is an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw. So this is something the Lord has given to Isaiah well before Psalm 137 is written about God going to judge Babylon, who is going to be the instrument of his judgment upon Judah. But go to verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So God is saying, someday... Judgment is going to fall upon Babylon, who I am now going to use to judge you. But someday, judgment's going to fall upon them. What will that judgment ultimately look like? Verse 16. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. See, Psalm 137 is nothing more than what God has already said He will do. This is not a bunch of people coming up with the idea, boy, how can we get back at the Babylonians? God, would you come and just dash their children to pieces? God's already said, that's what I'm going to do. That is how I'm going to act. Now, a couple of others, another scripture is Jeremiah 51, 24 Write that down, put it in the sideline as well. Jeremiah as well prophesies about this judgment that's coming upon Babylon. But now go back to Psalm 137. The question is, hey, we, we really don't even have a struggle with eight, do we? Okay? We, we can, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you. It's when we get to these infants things that we we get a little eh. but i want you to note the reading blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock my question to you is who is the he who is the he that the psalmist is saying that man is to be blessed Now the question is, not only who is the he, which I'll answer in a minute, why is he asking for a blessing? Because he's doing that which the Lord said to do. Whoever the he is, is being faithful to the prophecy that has been made prior to the captivity and what Babylon did to the people of Jerusalem. Who is the he? The he is Cyrus and Darius, kings of the Medes and the Persians. Those kings who come and destroy the nation of Babylon. When they come, they come with the vengeance that the Babylonians brought upon Jerusalem. See, that's what God said would happen. To those who raise the question, Lord, why why do you use sinful nations to punish us? Answer, you deserve it. But Lord, what about them? I'll take care of them. And the Lord does. He takes care of the Babylonians. 
through Cyrus and Darius. The empire is destroyed. Becomes the empire of the Medes and the Persians after that. They become God's instruments of delivering judgment that is equal to that which the Babylonians did to the people of Jerusalem. See, this judgment, this righteous judgment of God is a deed appropriate. See, this is this. You see, we look at it this and go, dash them to pieces. That's what the Babylonians did. That's what the Babylonians practiced. All that is happening in this passage is that God is repaying them equally for that which they did to the people of Jerusalem. We're not heightening it. We're not going beyond them. We're not, it's not like God is, you know, it's not like the people of, of Babylon. You know, took all the people of Judah and just were really nice and kind to them. No, they took their children and they dashed them against stones. And God said, someday, someday that which they have done will come back upon their heads. And the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who carries out God's judgment. So you see, not only do we have to understand that this righteous judgment is appropriate, it is also holy. It is also perfectly pure and without sin. For God to act as the God of justice. See, that supposedly is it not what our system of justice in the United States is based upon. It's not like, you know, if, if you, it's not like if you steal a candy bar, you get killed. There is to be an equal, there is to be a punishment that is equated to the crime that has been committed. That's, that's, that's supposedly the system we live under. All that's happening here in Psalm 137 is that system of holiness at work in perfection. That God in perfection, because we all know this don't work in the United States, right? We all know, okay, guys with rap sheets as long as our arms are out in two months and we're going, it isn't right, it isn't fair, that isn't the way it's supposed to be, but that's the way the system works. But you see, God is holy. God is without sin. And so when God brings justice upon the Babylonians of an equal weight of that which they did to the people of Jerusalem, you and I can step back and say, it is sinless. It is perfect, righteous judgment of God for that which they have done. The third thing to note about this is that you see, this is a portrayal. This psalm, especially these last verses, are a portrayal for us, not just of Cyrus and Darius. Cyrus and Darius are, are what we would say are, are, are sort of the first installment of the fulfillment of that. The ultimate fulfillment of this, you see, is Christ. It's interesting, and I'm sure Dr. Norm will 
will attest to this as well, how often Scripture uses the picture of Cyrus as sort of this precursor of Christ. His deliverance, his allowing the people to go back, his decree. There, there is a way in which Cyrus operates even in the Old Testament Scriptures as this, this shadow of Christ who is to come. You see, it's, it's no mistake, you see, when you turn to the book of Revelation, that when God gave to us a picture of that which is going to come, he used the city of Babylon as the picture. Because Babylon emerges as this anti-church, this anti-Jerusalem culture. And what happens in the book of Revelation? Christ comes. Turn with me to to Revelation chapter 17. We won't go into all the details here, but let me at least give the overview of it. Revelation chapter 17. See, we have in the first part, and and I'm I'm skipping over verses 1 through 13. Let me me just explain. The first part, the nations, the Babylon, okay, is gathering together to make war against the saints. Against Christ, against the church. Verse 14. Babylon, world, they make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. What happens? Christ wins. Christ becomes the Cyrus. Christ becomes the executor of God's judgment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, becomes the cry of chapter 18. There is, the the, all of chapter 18 is is the reminder of, of, of all those who are in league with Babylon, all those who are the tormentors of God's people, all those who have stood against the church of Jesus Christ, all those who have defamed the name of Christ, go down in defeat. And they're weeping and wailing because of the defeat of Babylon. Because Christ has conquered. Christ has won. Christ is victorious. Chapter 19. What happens in heaven? It rejoices. See, if you have a problem with Psalm 137, 8, and 9, you're going to have a problem with the end of time. Because you know what the church does at the end of time? It goes, hallelujah! Those who are opposed to Jesus Christ have been destroyed. See, we're not going, oh, man, we feel so bad for those poor sinful people who are now destroyed and in hell. We're rejoicing. Christ is one. God's righteous judgment has been executed through his faithful servant, Jesus Christ. He has come. He has won the victory. And the church rejoices in that victory. It celebrates that victory. The rest of eternity, my friends, is going to be lived in the celebration 
of the victory and the judgment of Jesus Christ. Something to think about, isn't it? You finish up in chapter 19. There is not only rejoicing. There is also the rider. I saw heaven open, verse 11 says, and behold a white horse, and the one who is on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. See, this is the picture of Christ that our world so desperately needs. This is the picture of Christ that the church needs to regrasp. Not a guy holding on a crucifix with nails through his hands. The picture the church needs to recover is this picture here. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you dare read the rest? If Psalm 137 offended you, don't read the rest of Revelation 19. Because you know what the rest of Revelation 19 pictures? It pictures a feast. But a different kind of feast. A vulture feast. That when Christ is done with His judgment, it is pictured for us as a world of corpses that the vultures are eating. And the church says, Hallelujah, the Lord our God reigns. Now if you're thinking, though, you see, Hallelujah, me and that guy who was always being mean to me at church, or that guy who was always mean to me at school, or that guy who was always making fun to me at work for praying, man, I'm glad he's in hell. No. See, that's personal. That's not, that's not biblical. That's wrong. For that person, you and I should be praying for their salvation. Seeking to win them over with the love of Jesus Christ. But you see, the righteous judgment of God. It's not what the church hides from. Not what the church mourns. It's that which the church celebrates. Because we know it is holy and pure. Even as the words of Psalm 137 are holy and pure. Blessed, blessed is the one who executes God's wrath upon this earth. Blessed be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It's rich promises to us as your people. In Christ, we celebrate your holy justice. Realizing that it is only grace 
by which we stand. In His name, God's people say, Amen.